Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. This podcast is for anyone who's interested in going behind the scenes of designing a house. I talk to architects and designers from around the world about how they create inspirational places to live. In this episode, I talk to the architect John Elway about the design of his own home, Terrarium House plant-filled property that defines inside-outside living. It's a renovation and extension of a typical bungalow in Brisbane, but from the street frontage all does not appear normal. The facade is a tangle of vines with a secretive front door. I talked to John about what lies within and how he designed this beautiful home for himself and his family. I hope you enjoy listening. John, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to uh, it's good to catch up and finally meet you. Yes, yeah, it's nice to meet you over video. Um, and we're going to be talking about Terrarium House today, um, which is a project. It's, an, it's a renovation of an existing bungalow. Um, I'm interested to know: is this was the the property before? Is that somewhere that you lived or you owned before you did the work on this? Um, it's kind of a funny story with this house because we spent a lot of time trying to find a property that I guess we could afford and and this one this one we could afford and there was a reason for that it was that you couldn't live in it. Um, there was a couple of <laughs> squatter-like kind of characters that were living here before and paying next to no rent and um, yeah, when we purchased it, we decided that we probably shouldn't live here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it actually... Um, it had its bathrooms downstairs under the house, kind of out in the open. So uh, it was not real great for that. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Architects' houses are usually the ones that nobody else will buy, which then usually leads to then great designs because there's problems to be solved. There, there was kind of 18 months of looking and um, I kind of did a lap through the house and came out and wrote the email offer. I knew kind of straight away that it was it was doable and that it, no one was going to go for it. And so when you when you did get the house, did you already have an idea in mind? Because you've called it Terrarium House. It's um, it's quite a catchy name for and and it clearly describes what the project is like. But a terrarium is a glass box for for putting plants in. Were you already thinking right from the start? Let's create a box for plants. No, not at all. Um, it the name came quite late in the piece. Um. I'd, after designing the project in my head and I guess getting it down on paper to a certain, certain degree, I, I then had to present it and sell the idea to my lovely wife, Amber. And um, it, was a, it was a case of trying to explain this idea about how the landscape would work. And it would be ambiguous about whether you were in the terrarium or outside the terrarium. And um, in many ways, some parts of the house, the garden feels like it's inside. Um and it was kind of it was my way of explaining to her that what that feeling was would be like. Um, but that all came about uh, after I guess a lot of a lot of investigation into like really pragmatic, practical things about the site and and I guess the condition of the house and how we were going to restore it to a certain degree and and deal with a lot of things going on on site. So the house wasn't in a great condition, um, but you also, did you also have some other challenges that were kind of at the forefront that you needed to address straight away. Yeah, the the big one was that the backyard was kind of turned into a, a small river during during the rain. There was no kind of stormwater pipes or 
so forth. And we were kind of at this point on the hill where we copped it from a heap of properties up the hill that, um, so we had to really manage, manage water. And mm-hmm. that's where, when you look at photos of the house, you'll see that there's a kind of a seat that wraps around the inside of the house and all the way extending into the backyard. And it, it's kind of set up a bit like a moat that really captures that water in torrential downpour and, and stops it coming into the house and across the block and sends it to the back corner and disperses right. it. Um, and so that that kind of move of controlling the water set up a lot of things. It set up, you know, what, what, were the, what was the height of the house off the ground and, and how are those kind of downstairs spaces going to be set up together? Yeah, and and part of because it's quite a small a small lot for um, Australian standards, if not much of the world, I guess it's about two hundred square meters. So, um, kind of a, it's a it's a case of uh, that that particular seat edge having it continue from inside the house all the way through the yard to the the back corner, like kind of psychologically makes you feel like it's one space all the mm-hmm. way through from the front to the back and. Um, Makes it feel a lot bigger, I think. And this is space that's underneath the existing bungalow, so to speak. So on the street, you've got a one-story house facing onto the street, and then the this undercroft that was when you bought it was outside space with toilets. This is a kind of whole floor level. So the garden is effectively one story below the street level. Yeah. So uh, Brisbane, the city that we're in on the kind of uh, east coast of Australia. Um, was one of, I guess, one of the one of the earlier uh, settlements um, that had a lot less money than, I guess, other cities like Melbourne and and, and Sydney. Um, so a lot of the the housing stock and and other buildings were built with timber, like kind of felled felled close by, and often they'd come in kits and delivered to site, and they were assembled. Um, so there's this kind of uh, tradition of of timber houses that sit on on timber stumps and over time they became concrete stumps elevated off the ground and that was really about dealing with the terrain brisbane's quite a hilly city and it has a kind of a serpent like river that that wraps back and forth on itself um and in between those peninsulas there's kind of there's a lot of kind of hills and valleys and um so you're always dealing with terrain and it was all about i guess creating a level platform to build on and then and then finishing the house on top. So this this house, like many of those houses, um, was off the ground and it had a quite a big fall from the street to the backyard around about kind of two and a half to three metres. Mm-hmm. And what those spaces below the house um, are like when they're kind of untouched, um, they can be super messy, they can be full of junk. And, and this house, we cleared out around six cubic metres of just rubbish under the house, old furniture and so forth. But the space under there is really beautiful. There's like uh, kind of dark shadowy corners and then um, really lovely dappled light that comes through the the trees and planting that, that surrounds and in our case was kind of a big overgrown jungle really. Mm-hmm. But walking under there and spending time under there before we did anything, it was it was that kind of quality of light that I really wanted to capture and retain as well as that kind of shadowy undercroft feeling. So that kind of led to the idea of the house, um, trying to keep that in the finished house as well. So 
um, that's why the downstairs level is is kind of dark and has the the stained timber, and it's that feeling of of shadow and relief from the light and the sun. Mm. And in 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 kind of southeast Queensland, um, as you kind of from here as you go north, the light quality is really intense, and it it's you know the sun and it, it's not a kind of European kind of lovely gentle light. It's really harsh. So you've um, your eyes need a rest from that, and yeah. the dark space really kind of does that. I find. Um, and the other thing I find is that the um, the use of the dark materials really makes you focus on the greenery that's outside and draws your eye deep and further out, which actually at the same time makes the house feel bigger. And so the geography of the house is you've got this – Is it? did you keep the bungalow? Is that existing, the top floor of the house? Yeah, it was a four-room um, cottage, I guess you'd call it, um, and – the, the front two rooms were retained and the rear ones, that one was a an old kitchen and another kind of little storeroom, um, was kind of tumbling down into the backyard because it had had a fire and there was termites and so that, that lean-to at the back was removed and rebuilt. So the actual footprint of the house is maybe only uh, two to three metres um, longer than it began. Um, it's just that we're occupying downstairs now. And so you've got this upper floor, the existing bungalow that's on street level, and that's got the, the bedrooms on that floor. And then you, you drop down to the garden level and the undercroft has been transformed into the living space. To achieve that, were you, were you literally propping up this old bungalow, putting it up on new stilts to then build underneath it? It's a fascinating process to watch. They kind of build... Um, Jenga-like um, towers, four of them, one in each corner, and they literally have car jacks that they pump <laughs> each corner of the house up with, and the house yeah. moves, like, right before your eyes, like, uh, 200 millimetres at a time in each corner, and they slot in another Jenga block and get it yeah. higher. So, in our case, we actually only raised the house about um, 300 mil, so not a lot at all. The kind of the typical go-to in Brisbane is... Lift it as high as you can. You're allowed to go up to about 9.5 metres, the peak of the roof. Um, so it's this this thing about getting views. But it really destroys the, the streetscapes is the main thing that it does. So you end up with these kind of stepping up and down towers down the street. So <laughs> It's whoever's managed to jack their house up the highest kind of... Uh, yeah, and so then if you're <laughs> the neighbour, you want to go higher, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the streetscape a little bit, because I think it's interesting how you've approached this design, because in one sense, you've not impacted the streetscape, you've kept the scale the same. So for all intents and purposes, not much has, has happened. But then on the front, you've got this new veranda that's completely covered in greenery. And what I really love about your first experience of um, approaching the house is that it's actually a secret door. So it's it's a kind of railing mesh with planting over it that you then open. Can you tell me a little bit about the sort of thinking behind putting this new veranda on the front of the house? Well, no one wants politicians knocking on your front door trying to tell you a story, <laughs> do they? So you've got to hide the entry. Um, but um, I guess the screening came about we had to manage privacy um, and 
I guess the big move in the house at the front was to remove the old veranda. Um, so before uh, there was a timber kind of decked area that, that led you to the front door. Um, and I guess what's happened with those spaces over time is as the streets have got busier and um, people tend to not use those spaces and so they end up filled with like bikes and shoes and plastic crates full of overflow storage um, and don't really get a lot of use. So my, my thinking was if we could remove this deck decking area and um, open it up, we've got um, – uh, a ventilation connection down to the lower floor from the street, but we've also got this ability to have passive surveillance from downstairs up through the void um, and out to the street. So you can kind of be anywhere in the house downstairs and see legs walking past along the footpath or a dog walking or hear someone coming to the, the front door if they know where it is and ringing the front bell. And, um, yeah, it's just being able to see all the way through and and being able to get that uh, that airflow from the street that would otherwise be blocked by the decking. And when you're seeing neighbours walking past, I mean, do you ever see anyone walking past and stopping and kind of looking and what the hell is going on here? <laughs> that happens. That happened a lot at the start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In particular, before the vine was, was grown. And so that, yeah. that vine is all about... Um, uh, it, it being kind of uh, not a lot of vine growth happens at the bottom, so we can see out through the underside, mm -hmm. but at the top where people's eyesight is, it's quite dense. So it just, they don't look anymore. They just keep walking because they can't see, see anything. Well, um, what's been the reaction kind of locally? If I can't imagine there's many houses on the street that, that look like this. Uh, no, I mean, a great reaction was that a couple came along and knocked on the front door and asked who their architect was. And my, my wife was at home at the time and um, said, oh, it's my husband, but uh, here's his details. And I, I got a job out of it. So, yeah. I mean, in many ways, that was the purpose of the project was to do something a little bit unusual, get attention from locals and, and maybe it leads to work. And the veranda, one of the big moves as well is you've pulled the staircase outside of the house effectively and you've put it in this front veranda so the front veranda space is a bridge you kind of go over a bridge to enter into the main house the bedroom level um, but then there's this double height space where you go down um, the stairs is that a space that's is that a cold area of the house do you effectively have to go outside and inside again when you're going between the two floors yeah um, and that was part of the uh, the the way I had to describe the idea of the terrarium and being in the garden um, um, to Amber. And um, so, yeah, that is the only bit of circulation between the two levels. Um, and I, and, and the, the move there is that people arriving at the house don't need to go into the upper level where all the bedrooms are. We can completely bypass that and get people downstairs to the, the more public rooms of the house straight away um and and to, for that to happen the stairs had to be right there on the front edge um but it's actually really lovely even in winter like i mean for us winter is kind of 10 degrees on the worst day sort of thing really um but uh so it's not really that cold but you get out of bed you pop downstairs to make a coffee and breakfast 
and you've had like you know a couple of seconds of going outside before you go inside again so when you come up later you know what you're going to wear for the day and <laughs> you've already kind of yeah you've you've like worked out what's going on without even having to look at your phone you know yeah and you go so when you you go down these stairs you start going below the the street level and the there's the one sort of very distinctive wall that's kind of using what look like kind of concrete blocks that are retaining back um holding back the street i'm assuming as a retaining wall um but you've turned this into a whole planting wall so as you're going downstairs you're kind of it's it looks like you're going down into this sort of subterranean planted space what did you use for that concrete wall are they kind of standard things that are used on highways or something because that's what they, they kind of look like they look like something that's been repurposed um can you tell me a little bit about that design yeah, it, it's called a crib wall, and it's again, it's a little bit like Jenga blocks. They mm. they stack, um, and yeah, the whole reason for that was that they're kind of fifty percent plantable as opposed to a kind of concrete blocks that might be a vertical face with with nowhere to plant into. But I guess this that brings along part of the ideas of the memories of the house, and that that reference comes from spending a lot of what it's one of the references that comes from spending a lot of time in Japan and those that particular retaining wall system gets used a lot on the, the freeways over there as well as a variety of different other ones. So the, I guess the connection to Japan is that I went there for the first time when I was about 12 um, for a school trip. And I absolutely fell in love with the place because it was just so, it was such an inverse of, of the, the place that I'd grown up in. And it felt kind of like the future, but at the same time, it was incredibly old as well. Um, and that kind of, that continued, I guess I, it began a relationship with the country where I would go back every couple of years. And so I, I probably couldn't count the number of times I've been there now, but um, it's, it's a place I go to as often as possible for kind of inspiration and a little bit of clear thought, I guess. And what kind of things came into the house then that had been inspired by travels to Japan as well as this planted wall? Um, it's much much to do with the thresholds of of going from the inside to the outside spaces and and that kind of those transition points so the the back decked edge and and just the detailing of some of the timber doors and windows how they open and shut and have little kind of small flaps to let small amounts of ventilation in certain times of the day and that's part of it i mean i guess you could probably subconsciously link choices about the, the 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 staining of the timber in black and that's kind of where i guess i guess i've described before on the website and so forth that a lot of these decisions were made not recalling any of these kind of references or memories but when you sit back and you think about it you 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 subconscious you realize why you've subconsciously made a lot of decisions mm. um which i I think it's quite fascinating. Yeah. And I guess that's something I try to tease out with my client work as well um, through questioning and getting to know them and trying to trying to find out what their memories are and trying to bring that to their projects. Yeah. 
Yeah, I do. I, I think it is fascinating the kind of subconscious choices you make, um, just sort of generally as an architect and in any kind of creative field, I imagine. But um, you've also talked a lot about um, on the website. You've talked about childhood memories as well. So as well as the kind of travel, but childhood memories. I mean, is, is there subconscious influences here in, in let's say, like the house that you grew up in? Has there been any influence on that? Um, there's a certain connection i guess with my grandmother's house in sydney that we spent a lot of time in um and it was this it was this amazing kind of 60s house that had all these lovely stepping levels and and areas of kind of similar ways the glass windows look out onto landscape and i think there's those sorts of connections um for amber i think some of the memories that we've captured from her um, probably come from uh, the garden. And in many ways, like she's spent a lot of time in Japan now since we've been together as well. So she's kind of quite connected to those, those ideas and inspiration as well. The garden kind of thing's quite funny in that. And I think in many ways it was the same for Amber. We've both got parents that like to garden and when we were children, we were tasked with helping, <laughs> but we hated it. And so one of the activities on the weekend was always going to nurseries and, you know, and you just like begrudgingly follow them and stomp your feet. But now it's it's our, it's the thing that we like to do every every couple of weekends and just buying silly plants all the time. It's the things that you resist when you're younger and then they, they yeah, sort of naturally then, come out later. Do you find yourself ever with this house kind of looking at it going, God, this is the house that my parents would have lived in? <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely the garden, maybe. <laughs> um, one of the things I quite like about the house is... Um, there's a real kind of level of complexity to it it's quite there's there's a mystery to it as you're kind of looking through it's it's very difficult to sometimes sort of figure out there's a lot going on but actually when you look at the plan and the design and um, particularly on the if we go down to the ground floor in the living areas it's a really simple plan it's a square four corners kitchen dining living and then a kind of utility toilet space in each of those corners but you've created a real dynamic there in terms of views and surprises. Um, how did you do that? What was your kind of process of designing this? Um, I tend to work mainly in plan for a long time uh, and then and then move to, I guess, section and working out levels of floors or in, in between spaces as well. But uh, spend a fair bit of time trying to rigorously trying to get the plan to be as like simple as possible. Um, and I guess a lot of the detailing comes along later and it, it's, not, it's not really starting with the, the detailing ideas, I guess is the way, what I'm trying to say. And um, do you do anything volumetrically to do like, do you model things or anything like that to figure out these double height spaces and views? Yeah. I, yeah, probably the next step is is jumping into sketch a tool like SketchUp or something and, and quickly modeling it up. And the main the main driver there is just trying to work out sun paths. So the the rear of this house is due north, so in the northern hemisphere, the equivalent of, of south. Mm-hmm. And um 
it's a textbook university first year kind of lesson of capturing sun and in winter and then stopping it in in summer you know mm-hmm. um, and it just it works really well so there's there's a series of kind of meter to meter and a half overhangs that step on the back edge of the house from from the bottom floor to the very top um, and so in the middle of winter we'll get uh, sun all the way back halfway into the kind of concrete slab of of the downstairs floor and that's really um, made possible with the void so the void kind of came about uh, for two reasons one was that kind of capturing of winter sun and the second one was making a really small house feel just ever so much bigger so because nearly every single space opens onto it whether it's on the the ground floor or the upper floor every single space get feels about one and a half times as big mm. as it did it as it is um so you really even though you might have lost a whole room on the upper floor every single other room's kind of gained the same bit of space to share you know and th- this is the double height ceiling space that's above the living space and then the main bedroom overlooks it I, I mean i think that's really good advice i mean we've done it in quite a few projects where i think people can often look at houses they look at the footprint and it's all about the square meterage and how many rooms can you get and it sometimes seems absurd to effectively in this house you've taken away what potentially could have been another room on the first floor um but like you said the qualities that it gives the space for me i think that's the key dynamic that it gives it's a simple plan you take away that portion and suddenly the views are kind of all over the place you know you're seeing sort of left right and center um, the thing I really love on the ground floor as well is the the kitchen is a kind of galley that then opens up towards the garden. But at the far end, um, it took me a while to kind of notice that it was there. But there's a downstairs toilet um, there that seems to face. It's kind of interesting. It's right next to the kitchen. There doesn't the door seems to be hidden, so it's kind of very open onto the kitchen. Um, but it also opens up onto planting. Kind of seems like you'd be going to the toilet, but feel like you're sat outside. Um, is that the case? That's exactly the idea. So that that glass sliding door is effectively the the inside outside door, and then you're entering an outside space. Um, you might not have picked it up, but that space actually has a shower in it as well on the ceiling. Right. So yeah. um, that came about for two reasons. One was that you know when we've got kids, you know they can just play in the backyard and send them straight in past the kitchen and have a shower, and you can kind of watch them while you're cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other bit was that having a second bathroom, just like that simple thing of adding a shower head in there, that the bank would give you more money. Like it was a, it was a simple <laughs> financial move. <laughs> so all of a sudden you've got another $10,000. So it's, um, yeah, just playing the system a little bit there as well. But um, that well, is I'm... probably my favorite room in the house. Oh, really? Um, like, I'm glad you said lovely, that I love it. <laughs> it's a lovely place to have a shower in the middle of winter, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, but this open sort of feeling, you're, if, you mean, if you're sat on the toilet, you're literally facing this planter that then looks like to the side, it's open onto the front veranda and where the staircase is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But very kind of, it's like you're kind of, it reminds me of those sort of showers you get in luxury hotels in really hot climates where you're, you're pretty much just stood outside and surrounded by planting. But you've done that for a toilet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, the, idea, the idea of that space was kind of uh, inspired by... Um, a trip that we did to Malaysia where nearly every hotel, yeah, you did step out a door and your shower was on the, on the veranda outside, but it was completely enclosed with planting. So that's where that comes from as well. 
Um, and then so downstairs, you've sort of mentioned already the the feel is very different between the two floors. You've used very sort of dark colours and you've got this concrete plinth that I was going to ask about, but you've you've kind of explained that actually that's a lot to do with keeping water out and dealing with the stormwater. But there's a thing that you've mentioned before that I really liked that you, you were you talk about that ground floor and being in it and feeling grounded um and by using these kind of warm and heavy materials can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by sort of the feel what what does that space feel like to feel kind of grounded in a living space yeah it comes back to the feeling of what those undercroft spaces are like in in queenslander cottages before anything's happened to them they're often dusty kind of dodgily concreted spaces that you might have a laundry and some toys and a cane chair sort of under there in the in the shadows so I think that was it was really important that that space was was concrete it felt like the undercroft and what the the kind of uh, seat water stopping ledge around the outside does as well is it allows the garden level on the outside of the house and that the garden that you step through as you come down the stairs to be ever so high ever so slightly higher than the the concrete slab so that kind of again makes you feel like you've hunkered down into the into the landscape a lot more Mm. because that all that planting is about you know a, a seat level higher than you yeah so you're very kind of tucked in um, it's very much opposed, isn't it, to kind of historical design of grand houses where they'd always be elevated and the master of the house could survey and see all the land um, that they own, whereas this is a very different feeling. It's that cosiness of the the garden is the envelope around you and you're kind of sunken down. I really like it. Um, and then upstairs, it's a very different feel. It's um, a lot of it's kind of white painted timber and it's very sort of fresh. Um, but um, I like the kind of simplicity of the layout. Again, upstairs one of the key things you've got you've got three bedrooms up there and then um one family shower room the two smaller bedrooms that are to the front of the house they're both open with they don't have normal doors they open with big sliding walls um and it, can you tell me a little bit about that of the the influence behind it and the, and the thinking behind having not having doors effectively yeah i guess the influence there is is again the travel in japan and large sliding doors to divide spaces um, in many of the more traditional homes, as well as more recent homes as well, I guess. Um, but that all comes from flexibility of space. So not having a huge amount of area, but the ability to open it up and use it as, I guess, a big playroom, those two bedrooms and the hallway, and then being able to shut them down when when children need more privacy as they grow older or just at bedtime. I just think it's really clever. Just it's using the hallway effectively as bedroom space. You've got that kind of flexibility, and that's yeah. It, it's a goal. Is that it's kind of one of the rules I always try to apply to every project. Is how do you not have hallway space that's all about just for walking? Because that's mm. really expensive to just walk down. So yeah, it's it's having hallways and circulation and all those kind of spaces do multiple functions, and that also happens a little bit further down the hallway where there's a. Um, a basin that opens out onto the hallway rather than it facing inwards to the um, bathroom. So the idea there is you can stand out on that hallway next to the void and brush your teeth or do your makeup and your hair and still be able to chat to the people downstairs um, that might be making brekkie or dinner or what so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I love the simplicity of that shower room. It's effectively one large room. It's a walk-in shower and a toilet sort of tucked 
to one side and then you like you said you've taken wash basin out onto the the hallway is that something that you've done before or you've seen before in, in other places yeah it's a it's a it's a trick that i learned from um uh james russell who's the architect that i worked for for about eight years before i went out and worked on my own so um he kind of mentored me and taught me a lot of a lot of stuff and that was one of the things yeah yes um and i mean what's it like to live you live in the house um what's it like to live there can you describe it um it's a very calming space particularly at night in that there's not a lot of lighting um and the lighting that there is 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 quite soft and calm and a lot of it actually happens out in the garden and so the downstairs spaces are all lit from behind the textured glass that you see in the photos. Mm. And so it's just kind of this like soft ambient light. But what it does is it it kind of makes you chill out and start to relax and I guess get sleepy earlier than you, you might normally in a bright house. Mm-hmm. So we'll be in bed by 8.30, you know. <laughs> that that was before we had a kid as well. <laughs> I was going to ask that actually because I think this, the, the main bedroom is open onto the double height space. There's no door or wall closing off that main bedroom, which is quite a big decision to make with a house. But I was imagining you've got a sliding panel in on the facade face in the garden that gives you some flexibility to cover the sun. But I imagine you are exposed to quite a lot of natural light still in that bedroom. Is Was that a very conscious choice to be kind of exposed to the natural rhythms of the sun? Um, yeah, Amber and I both, uh, are pretty comfortable with waking up early. Uh, to be honest, the middle of summer, I'd love a curtain, but the rest of the year, it's it's really lovely to wake up to the light rather than an alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, that bedroom's funny. It's a bit of an experiment in a way, cause it was kind of a decision about, um, quite often people in their houses want the master bedroom to be kind of an isolated uh, retreat, I guess, away from the mm. rest of the house. And we thought, you know what, we've paid for this house. It was expensive. Let's have the house and the, let's lock the children away. <laughs> so that's why they're kind of in the front rooms with the big solid doors that you can lock down. And then, you know, we have the rest of the house when they've gone to and bed. Has living in it sort of changed the way that you, you live? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I haven't really reflected on that a lot. Um, before this, we, we were living in an apartment block for about eight or nine years. So, the first couple of weeks that we moved into the house was really weird because all of a sudden there was there was car noise and there was animals and birds and mosquitoes and flies and all these different things that you just didn't have when you were kind of up high. Um, so, that was definitely a change that we're, of course, very used to now. But it's it's lovely to live, I guess, in landscape and that that landscape's taken three years to evolve. Mm. I think many of the gardens we might have planted once or maybe twice, some a third time even, just to get the species right. Like mm. it's been a lot of experimentation, but a big kind of learning curve as well in a good way. I, was, I mean, I really love camping and I always just think with house design to try and get as much of those qualities as possible into your everyday life. Um, and the real quality of camping is you open up the front of the tent and you're there you can hear nature you can hear everything and smell and um and it really does sort of look like you've achieved that with um with this house um are there any um, actually one thing i wanted to ask you about was you talked about the lighting 
um, and actually that there's not that much lighting in the space. Um, how did you achieve that? Because I think a lot of the time when we work on projects, people often get nervous about not having enough light and it's often the thing that's overcompensated. Um, and there's the fear of, well, if we design it this way, there might just not be enough light. How did you kind of manage that with this house? I guess it's all about options. There's a lot of kind of focused task lighting over bench tops and the, the dining table that are all on dimmers. So I kind of like fail safe. You can brighten that focused light up. But the ambient light of the space, I guess it's it's a house that's an experiment. So I was kind of like trying to keep it as minimal as possible and see how it would feel. Um, that was also a money thing as well. <laughs> so it's money. But um, I, I, I guess in my client work, I, I try to take a similar approach. And I guess there's always the ability to plug in lamps as well. People forget that the, the mm. sockets are there and that can be quite lovely. And and these days you can get lamps that Wi-Fi connected and you could set up mm. a schedule so they're not having to flick everything on and off. So the actual the lighting in this house, we don't actually turn it on and off. It, it comes on on a timer that I've set up. Right. And parts of the house at night turn off at about nine o'clock and some other parts turn off at 10 and then some at 12 so slowly the the, the light the amount of light reduces mm-hmm. and kind of sends a signal to you to go to bed as well um which is an experiment again i've kind of tr- t- tried and tried different kind of time patterns on that um and was kind of settled on a set so yeah and so being an experiment i imagine you know there must be things that you sort of learned from it are there any things that were kind of mistakes that um, maybe didn't quite work out as planned. Um, it's it sounds terrible, but it's been pretty good. Um, we're pretty happy. Like we've added the odd little thing over time. Like uh, the front bedrooms didn't have wardrobes and and things like that. But that was not really about fixing a problem. It was more about having the money to do it. So mm. we kind of each year that we've been here, we've we've added little bits that were kind of past, part of the master plan. Well, you talked about as well about learning lessons from like a previous architect that you worked with and bringing those ideas into this home. Is there anything that you've learned from doing Terrarium House that um, you now bring into projects for your clients? I think I, I, I find it a really good tool to be able to convince people that they don't need something as big as that they mm. might preconceive that they do. Um, So I'll often have client meetings um, at the house in the early days of a project um, and show them around and then explain to them how big it is. It's 105 square metres internally, which is pretty tight. It's Mm. kind of like an apartment really. But try to show them how the openings and of, of the doors and the windows, the way that they're detailed to disappear, make those spaces feel a lot bigger um, and how, how you can have a small house that's multifunctional, I guess, which is kind of, again, about those bedrooms up the top where the, the doors slide back and mm. downstairs all the doors and windows slide away so that that space opens up enough to feel like it's an outdoor kind of uh, patio area. Um, yeah, things like that. I think the size has been really helpful. Yeah. Are there any things that you kind of see that happen regularly in house design that frustrate you or that you kind of think, Come on, like you know, why why are people always doing that to their house? Um, they could be doing so much better. 
Yeah, I I mean, one of the ones is just the size of houses. Like mm. you just, and, and in particular, I guess what I was talking about earlier with circulation, like just wasting so much space on these areas that you don't really use a lot. Mm. Um, in yeah, in I mean, Brisbane, I, yeah. Yeah, I really agree with that one on the, I mean, I think the very first project we did for our company was, our aim was to try and do a space that didn't have walls and doors. It was just a flow of volume, so to speak. And, um, and that's a thing that I really love about this project. There isn't, you don't have those kind of barriers that traditional walls and doors present comes with its own challenges then of course, with privacy and retreats, but, um, but they're nice kind of challenges to engage with. Yeah. And, and not enough walls for paintings. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. Um, you know, how many wall surfaces do you have in the space for, for hanging up things? That's one thing about the void is it, and you end up with these really two really large walls up high that you can mm. hang on. So there's a really large painting that you might see in some of the photos in the void that works really well. And you can see it from most of the house. But yes, it's, I guess that's one of the things that Amber would love is more walls. <laughs> <laughs> but you did, you've For mentioned. For that purpose. <laughs> I think on the website you mention you talk about how the the house has lots of space and like kind of nooks for things and objects, and I think that's something that some is often kind of a criticism that's leveled at architects of kind of you know homogenizing the house and kind of hiding everything away. But to you, is that very important to have objects and to have space for kind of trinkets and and memories? Yeah, and I think if you can build furniture into a project, if you can find the the money to do that because it's it's it can be expensive like i think a lot of the time maybe houses end up a lot more stripped back because there's just not the budget but if you can if you can tackle that budget by doing a smaller house you've got more money to do more detail and building in furniture and shelving and kind of little alcoves and little surprises the best thing about that is that you can put it into the bank loan. And so the, the client isn't having to buy furniture with their own money at the end of the project. So that's kind of the positive that I see in terms of from a monetary point of view as well, which and these are kind of the important things you've got to think about, I think, is how do you pay for this stuff? What do you mean by that? You mean as in the loan that's been taken out to do the property, just yeah, get, so get everything in there at once? Yeah, so your home loan, if you can build the furniture into it, then it's part of the building works as opposed to something that the client buys separately that they might not be able to mm-hmm. finance. Yeah. If somebody was kind of looking at this house and thinking, look, this is, I want something like this. I, I love all the sort of planting and the feeling of openness. Um, what kind of one piece of advice would you give to them when they're designing their home? I think... The, the bit of advice I would say is that to be really patient on the landscape and experiment with it and don't don't worry if you stuff it up the first time and just keep keep trying things. Mm. I mean, even if you're probably engaging a landscape architect, um, you, they're never going to get it necessarily completely right the first time and, it, and it's okay and the, the landscape can evolve. Mm. Um, so I think you have to have an open mind about about getting involved with the planting. I was fine with our projects. It's the, it's the kind of eternal challenge with every project is everything's about kind of opening up the house onto the, to the landscape. But the challenge is often that in terms of budget, the landscape is often the first thing to go. Um, have you got any advice in relation to that? Did you have a landscape designer working with you on this project? 
Um, I had a friend that we kind of ran by a heap of species mm. decisions, um, but we didn't get a design done per se. Um, we kind of used it as a tool to be able to research of our right. own. Amber did a lot of the landscape. And was that the same case for you? Did did budget kind of go towards the house first and then garden afterwards, or were you kind of really paramount about it all kind of happening together? Oh, uh, we were just we were just scraping in to get the house finished with the money. Yeah. So the landscape took about a year after to kind of come together. Okay. Um, but you know, uh, buying plants kind of quite young and immature is not insanely expensive, and it can often be better to get them quite young and they kind mm. of seem to like growing up in the in the environment that they're going to live in rather than getting transparent planted and stressed a bit older um i mean i don't know a lot about landscape i didn't study horticulture or anything like that but that's our observation so far yeah yeah okay so um there's three questions that i'm asking all my guests uh, and the first one we touched upon a little bit earlier but and um, what's the one thing that really annoys you in your home <laughs> um it's the possums that eat the vine out on the front. <laughs> At the moment, it is getting completely decimated. So, um, are you partly to blame for that? Have you have you attracted them? <laughs> uh, I think so. Yeah, it's the only thing they eat—the passion fruit. So, we're in the process of uh, growing another vine to take over from the one that's there. That hopefully they won't attack. <laughs> well, that's that's good advice then for anyone that's um, that's planning something similar to think about the possums. Um, yeah, could you? describe to me one home that perhaps you've visited or that you've lived in before um, that's made you feel happy yeah so uh, I'll describe one that I've visited um, a couple of years ago I did a bit of an archie tour trip to LA and we managed to get into a, the home of Ray and Shelley um, Cappy and it's kind of uh, near near the beach um are you familiar with that house at all i'm not no it's uh it's a, i guess a series of uh square concrete towers and spanning between the towers with these really large redwood beams um is a series of uh platforms that come off the towers and they kind of step up the hill and what's really interesting about it is that the only only bit of structure that hits the ground is the towers because there's kind of a, a, a spring that, that runs beneath the house. So they had to kind of, they couldn't block that. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's just such a beautiful example of uh, really simple structure coming together to create really lovely spaces uh, where inside the house there's this, these social connections between the levels so you can kind of be in the kitchen and and, and look through the house across about mm. three or four stepped levels and see everything. Um, and it's just over time, I think, with the, the landscape and the trees around it, to, like it just has beautiful light coming into the house. So it's, I guess it's all the goals that I would like to be able to one day do. Um, but uh, I think what made that visit so special was that we – we didn't organize to visit the house and we just rolled up and mm -hmm. knocked on the door and convinced them to let us in. And they were like, come in for 10 minutes. And we ended up staying like three hours chatting. It was, it was fantastic. And it's, it's the only building I've ever visited where when we left, I was in the car and I actually cried because it was so, wow. 
It was so fantastic. Yeah. Wow. And has anyone done that with your house? Knocked on the door and um, been let in? Not that I want to attract uh, people to start doing that. This is always random. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you could choose any designer design uh, to design you a home, um, who would you choose? Um. So if Ray Ray um, Ray Cappy was still alive, I would get him to do it for sure. Um, he actually passed away last year, um, sadly, but um, yeah, definitely that's who I'd get to do it. Um, it's worth listeners. It's worth um, looking up the work. I actually came across, across him as an architect from watching, um, do you know the TV series Californication? Did you yes. ever watch that with David Duchovny in it? Yeah. And his ex-wife is like an arch- budding architect and like um, ends up visiting all these houses by Ray. Um, and I was like, oh, these are crackers. And then I started Googling him and doing all this research. So it's funny, you know, pay attention to what you watch on TV. <laughs> yeah. um, well, John, thank you very much. Um, I've really enjoyed that interview. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks, George. Thank you for listening to another architecture podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Terrarium House, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review on iTunes or on whichever platform you are listening on, as it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thank you for listening. Thank you.